We're in Romans chapter 1. Mark already talked about verse 20. We're going to read it here in a second, but we're going to start at verse 16. Paul's letter to the Romans. Follow along with me. Paul says, I am not ashamed of the gospel because it is the power, with the power of God for salvation for everyone who believes, first for the Jew, then for the Gentile. For in the gospel, a righteousness from God has been revealed, a righteousness that is by faith from first to last, just as it is written, the righteous will live by faith. The wrath of God is being revealed from heaven against all godlessness and wickedness of men who suppress the truth by their wickedness. Since what may be known about God is plain to them because God has made it plain to them. For since the creation of the world, God's invisible qualities, His eternal power, and divine nature have been clearly seen, being understood from what has been made, so that men are without excuse. For although they knew God, they neither glorified Him as God, nor gave thanks to Him. But their thinking became futile, and their foolish hearts were darkened. Although they claimed to be wise, they became fools and exchanged the glory of their immortal God for images made to look like mortal men and birds and animals and reptiles. Join me in prayer. Our precious Father, thank you for your word. Thank you for the Apostle Paul who wrote down what you gave him to say to remind us that since time began, since you started this creation, you have made yourself known to everyone so that we are without excuse. Open our hearts and minds, Lord, to your word that we may hear your message today, receive it and respond. It is in Jesus' name we pray, amen. Probably everyone is familiar with the book, The Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe. If you're not, it's a good book to read. It's by C.S. Lewis. C.S. Lewis was uh, raised in a Christian home, but when he was about 15, he turned away from God, declared himself an atheist, and went through life for a little while, but then he met a man, J.R.R. Tolkien. You might remember Joe Tolkien. He wrote The Lord of the Rings and all those. He was a Christian. And through his influence and G.K. Chesterton and some others, C.S. Lewis came back to the Lord and was a tremendous author, wrote many great books. But the Chronicles of Narnia are some of the favorite of almost everybody. They've been made into movies, and it's enjoyable. The Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe was the first book that he wrote in 1950. That's how far back it goes. In that book, just to refresh our memory, Four children are having to stay with their uncle. It's wartime in England. So they would send them out to the uh, rural areas to live because the city was so dangerous. And they went to be with their uncle. And while they're exploring this great mansion, they come across this wardrobe. And they find out that if they go through it, they, <coughs> pardon me, they work their way through the coats, they end up in a snowy countryside with a light post there and as they continue to explore they run afoul of the great witch the white witch there and the reason that she was 
against them as she had taken control of the world, had turned it into a snowy expanse and wanted to be in control. And there was a prophecy that said, when two sons of Adams and two daughters of Eve appear, that it will mark the end of her reign. So of course she wanted to find them and stop them, kill them, imprison them. And so they are working to try to get to Carnarvon, the castle there. And she is pursuing them along the way. Her, one of the boys, Edmund, had run across her earlier and she gave him some candy and that won his uh, loyalty to her and he ended up betraying the other children and that's how she knew about them and was pursuing them. And in that betrayal, she gained a power over them. Aslan comes to them. Aslan is a great lion, very benevolent, very powerful lion. And he befriends the children but the white witch reminds him that because of Edmund's betrayal, that he belonged to her and he could do with her what he, she wanted. But there was more in the law of the creation of Narnia. And that law was that if someone was willing to substitute themselves to give their life for the betrayal, betrayer's life, that he could go free. So Aslan offered himself as a sacrifice. And you can start seeing the Christian influence here. The time came for Aslan to be sacrificed. They strapped him down to a great stone tablet. The white witch took a dagger and stabbed it into his heart, killing Aslan. One of the girls was watching and she was devastated to see him be killed. The white witch then takes all of her army and proceeds to attack the castle and to defeat the Narnians and to maintain her control. During the night, though, there was a great crack. The stone tablet broke in half and Aslan disappeared. He was resurrected. And when the children ask him about it, because they're, they're incredulous that he's alive, he says there was an ancient, and C.S. Lewis used the word magic, that dates back before the white witch knew. And so we have this allegory about Aslan being the, the son of the great emperor, giving his life for Edmunds so that Edmund could live, but because of who Aslan was, he was able to defeat death, just as Christ did for us. So the, the books go on. The children get to know Aslan very well. He's a, a very powerful lion. All, uh, all the powers of a, of a great being. But he's also very kind, very loving, very playful. And over the course of the time, they start just getting used to having him around. Well, sometime later in another book, another trouble comes up. They're into a battle. They're into a struggle. And Aslan's not showing up. He had always shown up before. 
and they're, they're confused, they're frustrated. Why won't Aslan come? We call for him, we're looking for him, we need him to come. And he's just not responding. Doesn't he care about us anymore? And one of their cohorts, the, one of the Narnians, says to them, Aslan is not a tame lion. He doesn't come at their bidding. He doesn't respond to their call. He comes as he knows he needs to, when he needs to. And that phrase just has stuck with me as I read the books. He is not a tame lion. You see, the children had started taking Aslan for granted. They started seeing themselves as important and he was there to help them rather than the other way around. They were his subjects. They were his servants. They were expecting him to respond to their needs when they wanted him to on their bidding. But he was the supreme one and they were to respond to him. And so they were trying to tame him, trying to make him the one that responded. So they had to learn that that phrase. And of course, that phrase is one that we can apply to our relationship with God. Our passage in Romans is a reminder that God is the judge and arbiter of our life. He is the creator. He established all things. He spoke and worlds came into existence. The Bible tells us He maintains them by His hand and He he, he keeps everything running. He is great and powerful. In Romans chapter 1, the Apostle Paul begins by establishing God as that Creator. It's He that we are to follow and obey. Paul reminds us that God is righteous, which is an understatement. We strive to be righteous. Righteous means right living, doing the right thing. In the Old Testament, they strive, strove to be righteous and that endeared them to God, and later when Jesus Christ came, they were rescued from Sheol and ascended, a whole other teaching there. But righteousness is what we attain to, but God is all righteous. God is perfect. He is without blemish. He is without any shifting shadow. He is a just God. We believe in justice. We don't want it for ourselves too much. But when we're driving down the road, for example, and someone zooms by us, obviously exceeding the speed limit, and we shake our hands, heads, and maybe cluck our tongue, and we, we think somebody ought to do something, and about that time a trooper comes coming after them, we go, all right. And then we see them pulled over, and we think, well, they got justice. Justice is getting what you deserve when you do something wrong especially. And so we're glad when people are served justice. When we think about some of the, the great horrible people of our time, most recently, I guess Saddam Hussein or bin Laden, some of these people, we rejoice, not necessarily at their death, but that they met justice, that they gained justice for their wrongdoing. That serves our sensibility. And God is a just God. When Adam and Eve fell, when they took the fruit, it brought a sin nature into man's life. 
And that sin nature made us at enmity with God. It made us as if we were enemies. Pardon me. God couldn't have fellowship with us because of that sin nature. Something had to be done about the penalty for that was death. As you look at Romans 3.23, 6.23, for the wages of sin is death, but the free gift of God is eternal life. So God is a just God. And as a just God, excuse me just a minute, <coughs> He must punish sin. And that is an awesome thing. A terrible thing. R.G. Lee, great preacher of bygone days, did a sermon, Sinners in the Hands of an Angry God. And that's where we are as sinners. Paul reminds us of that wrath of God against godlessness, wickedness of the people. Some people, when they think about that, they equate that God with the Old Testament. And certainly the Old Testament is filled with God's law and God's coming against the wrongdoers and and His wrath is exposed. And so people will think about that as one God, but I embrace Jesus Christ, the New Testament God. I embrace the One who came to love us, who died on the cross, who, who gave His life for us. But what they don't realize is that a simple picture to take in is that that's two sides of one coin. There is one God. A triune God who is God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit. They are one God. But we see these two parts. We see a just God who must act against wickedness and evil if He is to be just. And we see the merciful God the One who took on flesh, who came, who gave His own life for our benefit. And that's God's merciful justice. There in in Romans, we see where Paul is writing that God comes against wickedness and evil and His wrath is poured out on that. But God provides a way to escape that wrath. He provides a way to not have to endure that. He extends mercy. Mercy is not getting what you deserve. Justice is getting what you deserve. Mercy is not getting what you deserve. And God goes beyond that and extends us grace. Grace is getting what you don't deserve. So too many who embrace Jesus in the New Testament dismiss Jehovah God of the Old Testament. They think that Jesus canceled out the law and the Old Testament. But Jesus said Himself, do not think that I have come to abolish the law or the prophets. I have come not to abolish them, but to fulfill them. Jesus Christ was that fulfillment. The law pointed to having to pay the penalty of death for sin. We were insufficient to be able to do that, but Jesus Christ coming in the form of man as God was able to take our sins upon Himself, carry them to the grave, rise again as Aslan did from the stone tablet, and bring us 
the opportunity for eternal life. Jesus fulfilled that law by sacrificing His life on the cross. And those who, it it confounds me, those who want to throw away the Old Testament because of what Jesus just said there and how many times Jesus quoted the Old Testament. He obviously expected people to know it and to live by it. Jesus didn't replace God. He is God. He is that other side of the coin. He is uh, the, the loving side. But Jesus is also uh, very straightforward with us. We humans aren't good at balancing life. We tend to swing the pendulum to extremes. Many years ago, many of us grew up under preaching that we called hell, fire, and damnation. Everything was, you're going to go to hell, you're going to go to hell. And it probably was excessive because God is a God of love. He does love us. He doesn't want us to do that. He doesn't want that to be our end result. But that was the focus. Then about the 60s, we started talking more about the love and grace of Christ. But I fear it has swung too far the other way. And that we start becoming like those children with Aslan. We start taking God for for, uh, granted. That we start thinking that He is someone to respond when we call rather than we're under Him. Paul understood God's wrath. He knew he was deserving of God's punishment. It was Paul who had hunted down followers of Jesus Christ and oversaw their stoning and crucifixion. But God mercifully forgave him and applied his sacrifice on the cross to Paul's sin, thus giving him eternal life and indwelling him with the Holy Spirit. He turned Paul's life around from being a persecutor of Jesus' followers to being a participant in proclaiming Jesus to a lost and dying world. Paul not only proclaimed God's wrath against evildoers, he reminded Jesus' followers that God expected them to become more like Christ. He preached that God held his people to a high standard. The danger of overemphasizing the love of Jesus Christ is that we diminish our responsibility to follow and obey our Savior and Lord. He is God. Paul addressed this later in the book of Romans. These verses from Romans 6, 1 through 4, Paul writes, What shall we say then? Shall we go on sinning so that grace may increase? Some were saying, hey, I make God look good. When I sin and He forgives me, He's looking merciful and gracious. Paul's saying, no, it doesn't work that way. By no means. We are those who have died to sin. How can we live in it any longer? Or don't you know that all of us who were baptized in Jesus Christ were baptized into His death? We were therefore buried with Him through baptism into death in order that just as Christ was raised from the dead through the glory of the Father, we too may live a new life. A life following Jesus Christ. We rejoice in that saving grace of Jesus Christ through whom we've received forgiveness and eternal life with the Father. His grace is not a license to do as we wish. 
and then rub the bottle of forgiveness when we feel guilty or get into trouble. He's one to be followed. Jesus warned us of this. Again, Jesus said, Many will say to me on that day, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name? And in your name drive out demons, and in your name perform many miracles. Jesus speaking, then I will tell them plainly, I never knew you. Away from me, you evildoers. We can be religious. We can act religious. We can go through the motions. But that doesn't mean we have that personal relationship with Jesus Christ that must be at the core. When we have that personal relationship with Him, then these acts of righteousness, these acts of goodness, flow from His strength through us. But when we work in our own strength, we can do a lot of good things. We can do good to others. But that doesn't mean we're a follower of Jesus Christ. And Jesus reminds me, reminds us, to obey Him, to follow Him, to do as He says. But too often, we can read Scripture or we can hear something and we'll think, well, that doesn't apply anymore. That's first century stuff. That's fifth century B.C. stuff. But God's Word is true. It's eternal. It's sound. And it all is bearing on us. All Scripture is given for reproof. Jesus does love us. He did die on the cross to bear our sins and to take those sins to the grave. He did die so that we could live, but that doesn't mean we can live as we please. When the woman was caught in an adulterous act, was brought before Jesus, He showed her mercy. He condemned the actions of those who brought her to Him because They weren't interested in God's law. They were using her. No one denied that it was a sin, but they were using her to try to trap Jesus Christ. They could care less about the woman. They had no mercy. So we know the story. Jesus scribbled in the sand, and when they persisted, He said, You who are without sin, cast the first stone. And we're told one by one they left. And then Jesus said this to the woman, Woman, where are your accusers? Has no one condemned you? No one, sir. Then neither do I condemn you, Jesus declared. Go and sin no more. Jesus forgave the woman. He didn't condemn her. Even though she was caught, it was real. No one's denied that it happened. But he forgave her sin. But he didn't condone that sin. He didn't forgive her sin so that she could go back to that life. He said, go and quit doing what you're doing. And Jesus says that to us. I forgive you of whatever it is that he forgives you of. But don't do that. Stop doing that. Follow me. Listen to my word. Obey me. As we enter this new year, we do well to remember that God is a God of justice and mercy. He will exact His justice against sin. Jesus died on the cross 
For, but, and those who believe in Jesus Christ as their Messiah, as their Savior and Lord, receive His forgiveness, receive His pardon, and will abide with Him in heaven on that day He calls them home. But for those who continue to reject Jesus Christ, reject His work on their behalf, reject the gift that He came, they will face justice in those end times. God is just. He can't turn His head and act like it didn't happen. People have to be held responsible for their actions. So we would do well to remember that. God is a merciful judge. He decreed that the punishment for our sinful nature is eternal death, the death of the Spirit, death separated from God. But He came, taken on the form of man, so that He could bear our sins to the cross and leave them in the grave. By His act, He pardons us from our sin. Nevertheless, the pardon, though freely offered, must be personally received. In this passage, one of the things that fascinates me is that verse that we've read and Mark talked about. For since the creation of the world, God's invisible qualities, His eternal power and desire, divine nature, have been clearly seen being understood from what has been made so that men are without excuse. From the beginning of time, God has made Himself known through nature like the one Mark. He, he sensed, He knew there was someone greater than Himself and He believed. But how did God reveal Himself to ancient man? They didn't have written word and if they had it, they couldn't read it. Language wasn't defined yet. They didn't have preachers going around telling them what to do. But God made His Gospel known to them. Several people, and I'm one, believe that one way God did that was by the constellations. That He wrote His Gospel in the stars. And that's what we're going to talk about on Tuesday night. We're going to start substantiating the how ancient man knew the stars and constellations. And then we're going to talk about each one and how it tells part of the story of the gospel. I hope that'll interest you and you'll want to be a part of that. Somehow, in many ways, God has made Himself known. That's part of His being a just God. An unjust God would say, this is the standard you've got to live to. Figure it out for yourself. Our God's not like that. He said, this is the standard. This is how you can satisfy it through Jesus Christ. He provides the way that we cannot provide. That is a just, merciful God. So my prayer for each of us, including myself, my fingers are pointing at me, that we would all, in all seriousness, remember that we who once were objects of wrath were saved by a loving God unto good works and ordained to become like Christ. And so, may each one of us, each morning, when we wake, ask our Heavenly Father, what is it you would have me yield today? 
Where do you need me to surrender? How can I follow you more closely? You are God. I am your humble servant. Speak to my heart, Lord, and show me. So I do hope as we go into the year, we embrace the love of Jesus Christ. We share that love with others. We envelop them. We enwrap them in His love. We are Jesus Christ here on earth. The Holy Spirit dwells in us. We are to show Jesus Christ to the world, to our community. So may we do that. But may we also recognize that God is a just God holding the guilty accountable, holding us accountable when we fail to obey and follow Him. We don't lose the salvation, but we limit our reward. We grieve the Holy Spirit when we quench Him. So may we walk in the newness of life, in newness of light, in serving God, yielding ourselves to Him, asking Him to reveal to us what each one of us need to yield to Him. Join me in prayer. Our precious Heavenly Father, my words are incapable of expressing the deep truths of Your justice and mercy. We cannot fathom. We've sung how great Thou art. We've sung this is my Father's world. We've sung great is Your faithfulness. But Lord, our minds cannot truly conceive of who You are, of Your greatness, of Your eternality, of Your power, or even the depths of Your love. But Father, I would ask that You would empower Your Holy Spirit in each life here. That You would give a fresh revelation, a fuller, a deeper revelation of who You are. That we might appreciate our salvation even deeper. That we might understand our position before You, Almighty God. That we would know that You're a loving Father wanting to pour out blessings upon us, but that You will not and cannot reward disobedience and selfishness and self-gratification. So Father, help us to learn, teach us, show us that by yielding our lives to You, that we gain an abundant life we can't imagine. And Lord, help us as a church to share that word to our community, to demonstrate it through our lives, but to speak it as well. Father, all these things I ask through the person of Jesus Christ. We gather in His name, worshiping Him, and pray. Amen.